Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In Thomas Jefferson's day, 90% of the population worked on family farms. Today, in a world dominated by agribusiness, less than 1% of Americans claim farm-related occupations. What was lost along the way is something that Evelyn Funda, author of a new book, Weeds, A Farm Daughter's Lament, experienced firsthand. In 2001, her parents sold the last parcel of the farm they had worked since they married in 1957. Against that landscape of loss, Funda explores her family's three-generation farming experience in southern Idaho, where her Czech immigrant family spent their lives turning a patch of sagebrush into cropland. The story of uh, Funda's family unfolds within the larger context of America's rich immigrant history. That, has, that uh, story is very interesting. For example, her mother escaped from communist Czechoslovakia in the false bottom of a wine barrel and ended up in Idaho. Weeds reminds us that in losing our attachment to the land, we also lose some of our humanity and something at the very heart of our identity as a nation. Evelyn Funda is Associate Professor of American Literature at Utah State University, and she joins me in studio. Thanks for joining me. Good morning. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Very interesting book. And uh, this is a story not only of your family, very interesting story, but also a a story of of loss, of of exile. It's an elegy has been described. That's right. Uh, Something that we have all lost in the disappearance of the family farm. Yeah, I mean, we've all lost it, but we're all still connected to it. I mean, statistics show that even those of us who don't live on farms are two to four generations away from the farm. Um, That's still very much a part of our culture and our heritage and and very much a part of how we think of our life experience in America. Mm -hmm. And uh, you have written, and we'll get into this as we get to talking about it, what what farming means. It's, it's been idealized ever since the time of Thomas Jefferson, who called uh, farmers the chosen people of God, and yes. even before that. Uh, this is sort of a vessel into which we put a lot of our ideals. Yeah, I tell my students a lot of times that it's kind of a shopping cart in which we sort of throw in all these notions about farming. I mean, we see farming in so many different ways. We idealize it, we vilify it, um, and we can't escape it. I mean, the minute you start thinking about, well, the fact that we all eat, um, we're all connected to the farm, Mm -hmm. that eating is a farm act. Yeah. And as you point out, most of us are within two to three to four generations. Um, So you grew up on a farm. I did. Now you've uh, followed the journey of many Americans. Uh, You you make your living else how. Um, My mother grew up on a farm. I'm just Mm -hmm. one, one generation removed. So uh, many of us are connected, and we do have this ideal, whether we have that connection or not. Yeah, we tend to have a kind of nostalgia about the farm, and and to some degree that's valid. I mean, I'm certainly nostalgic about my farm experience, but what I found as I was writing the book is it's a lot more complicated story, um, that there are positives, but there are also real negatives in that, too. Mm-hmm. Let me have you uh, read the first page and a half from the preface of the book. This is uh, you, you titled the preface "In Dirt We Trust." Maybe right. later we'll have you uh, tell us why you why you title it that way. But uh, this is it gets us into your story. Okay. In late two thousand and one, my small family suffered what I think of as a triple tragedy. On October one, two thousand one, my father, Lemire Funda, age seventy nine was diagnosed with advanced lung cancer that by the time of the diagnosis had metastasized to his brain, liver, spleen, spine, and bones. The prognosis was two to four months to live. He was briefly given radiation to relieve some of the pain and to shrink the tumor that had compromised his speech and mobility before he was sent home with my mother on October 23rd. 
On October 25th, my mother, Tony, age 75, suffered a heart attack. Nine days later, or after nine days in a cardiac unit, where she experienced additional complications, she died on November 3rd. My father's death came shortly thereafter on November 29th. These events were preceded by the sale of the family's farmland. Just a month to the day before my father's diagnosis, my parents had signed the papers finalizing the sale of the last parcel of farmland they had worked together since my father and mother, her Czech immigrant, had married in 1957. In fact, my father had farmed this land for most of his life, and his father, also a Czech immigrant, had originally purchased it for a small sum in 1919, when the parcel was nothing but a sheep-grazed sagebrush terrain. Although the land was never hugely profitable, my family always was proud of the fact that they had transformed this unlikely spot. When people talk about the autumn of 2001, these are the losses that I think about, not the Twin Towers. The news of 9-11 seemed like a blurry background to my own razor-sharp losses that fall. Some would say that the timing of these events in family history was merely coincidental. Bodies fail, deed lands change hands, and people endure losses. Cutting through the hard pan of my family history, I could make out the separate strata of losing home, family, and a sustaining belief in agricultural values. As I considered individual family stories, I found a series of literal and psychic displacements, a history of transience, obsession and dispossession, and a hunger for permanence. That hunger for permanence, I think, is what has driven most people who, who have searched for, for land. For uh, you, you say your grandfather uh, latched onto this, at least, I don't know, maybe not literally, but it, in his idea, he was looking to build a kingdom. That's right, yeah. And that's, that's one of the common ways that we have perceived of, of American farmland. It's this idea that we get to transform the land into our own image, and, it, and it's kind of a kingdom um, that we get to rule. It's a sort of conquering aspect, uh, conquering notion of the, of the world. You, uh, you say that Brigham Young, his famous statement, those four <laughs> words, this is the place, mm-hmm. You say that was a declaration of dependence on the land. Yeah, I do. And um, I think in many ways that what the Mormons experienced, this idea of trying to come into a landscape and say, finally, this is our place, that there is that sort of sense of, of regret in a way that other places couldn't be this place. Um, I, for instance, I call the the book Weeds, because I think of weeds as this kind of thing that is never wanted where it's at. I mean, Emerson said that the weeds are just unappreciated wherever they are. And that always sort of reminds me of a of a promise that, okay, if not here, then maybe somewhere else you can set down roots and have a sense of permanence. Hmm. And uh, each chapter is, is titled after a different kind of weed. Mm-hmm. For example, Wild Oats for your mother. Right, right. Um, maybe uh, this would be a good place for you to read a, a passage, which uh, is introduction to your mother and her introduction to Idaho. And then we talk a bit about your, your mother, who has this extraordinary story, as I referenced earlier, who escaped from communist Czechoslovakia. Yeah, um, let me sort of set up the passage that I thought I would read. Um, this is a story about my parents' courtship. And as background, um, my mother had actually been raised in a little tiny rural village in southern Czechoslovakia. 
and she was forced to escape the communist-held um, country in 1951, and she had to leave without a word to her family. Um, and she lived in Munich for a while, and then by 1955, she'd immigrated to New York City. And through a network of Czech immigrants, she began a correspondence with my father, who invited her out to Idaho, and that's where I'll begin. Mm. In August of 1956, she shipped all her belongings via railroad to Idaho, posted in care of my grandfather. Two days later, she boarded a United flight at LaGuardia that took her to Chicago, <clears throat> and then that same afternoon on to Boise. Apparently, however, my father was not there at the airport to greet her. This I infer from dates in one of his John Deere pocket ledgers where he kept records of custom farm work that he did, the wages owed to the hired men, the cost of barrels of grease, the hours that he worked on the combine, etc. When I originally found the ledger in a drawer after their deaths, I set it aside in a keep pile only because it contained my father's precise handwriting and because the names of the farmers in the ledger reminded me of the faces of people I'd once known. Witzel, Fulgham, Blazer Brothers, Stover. It was much later, however, when I took, a no took note of the title that he had penciled onto the worn cover, Combining, 1956. This ledger then documented the custom farm work he did the summer my mother came to live in Idaho, and I'd like to believe that he kept this particular logbook, not others, to remind him of the summer days that had brought Tony to Idaho. According to his ledger, by the end of July, he was logging 11, 12, and 13-hour days on the combine, moving from farm to farm. Every day during the first three weeks of August, save one, the log shows 12 hours of work or more. August 16th, the day of my mother's arrival, shows only 11 hours, but the next day he worked 13 hours and 12 days the day after that. With grain in the fields, there was little time for romance. Only August 19th, the Sunday after Tony's arrival, is blank, presumably because he had uncharacteristically taken a day off during the harvest to get to know this woman with whom he had only exchanged a few letters. I've heard they took a drive north along the twisting Riverside Road up to Cascade Lake so that he could show her the place that he'd referenced in his Easter letters. Along with my grandparents and my dad's brother and sister-in-law, they drove up the canyon for a picnic at Donley, where the family leased additional farmland. My aunt from Portland tells me that she heard from her parents that the couple was tense and silent during the drive. Everyone watched and presumed an argument, but on the way home, she reports, they were talking again and everyone was relieved they had made up. But this information comes to me third-hand, a story half-remembered and told more than 40 years later by someone who wasn't even there. My father's log does not reveal any such emotional complexities. It shows only that once again on the following Monday, the 20th, he logged 12 hours on the combine. It must have been inconsolably lonely for her. But by then, I suppose, Tony, the refugee, was accustomed to loneliness, practically saw it as a companion in itself. When my grandparents brought out lunches to Dad and the hired man, she might have ridden in the back of the old Ford truck, oh, the old Ford truck bouncing in the back seat over rough fields next to a hamper full of salami sandwiches and a thermos of black coffee. She might have delighted in the warm, sensual aroma of the grain harvest, recognizing it as one from her childhood. I picture her raising her hand to shade her eyes from the glaring sun so she could better watch Lemire guide the big combine around the cornfields. How much could she foresee about how their lives and ultimately their deaths 
would mesh as she sat next to him in the shade of the combine, watching as he set his cap back further on his forehead, as he sighed in the heat and propped one elbow up on a bent knee to eat a sandwich. Would she have been attracted to the deep tan of his forearms? After lunch, she probably joined Lemire's parents in the car, and on the way home, she might have sung along with Doris Day's chart-topping song, Que Sera, Sera, that evocative line, I asked my sweetheart, what lies ahead? Hmm. So this wouldn't have been all that unusual in the, in the way your parents got together. Yeah. There, there were a lot of uh, and it's correspondence, just, uh, mail yeah, order, bride Just extraordinary kind of to us now. but uh, Yeah. And this was 1956. I mean, we think of correspondence, the, mm-hmm. the mail order bride, as a sort of a late 19th century phenomenon. But this was mid-20th century. So they didn't know each other that long before they... Uh, no, and it's it's kind of an odd story because the letters don't actually show, the ones that I still have, don't actually show my father inviting her out. Mm. But the fact that she packed up all of her belongings suggests that, you know, there was going to be a sense of permanence here. And whether or not he proposed marriage in one of these letters or um, just suggested that this would be a good place for her to come, I don't know. Yeah. I'd like to hear a little bit more about your your mother's story. This is just extraordinary. She, uh, of course, um, suffers through, you know, the Nazi Europe, and then the people are thinking, well, the communists come in, they're going to be the saviors, and it turns out they're just as bad. Um, And uh, by chance, she happens to become connected with a family who uh, is is part of the underground, getting people out. Yeah, she um, takes a job as a nanny and sort of nurse companion to a woman named Frances Pescar. And Frances's husband was Yosef Pescar, um, who was a journalist in Moravia. And that was the, that's what everyone knew. But what people didn't know was that he was also a sort of leader of an underground resistance group in Moravia that <clears throat> helped Czech immigrants, Czech people escape the, the communist um, regime. And that was because Moravia, the, the village that where they were living, was only 20 kilometers from the Austrian border. And so as she's working for them, they confess that, you know, they're, they're doing this. And she says, sure, I'll, I'll help. And, um, you know, she does a, a number of jobs for them. But, I mean, tame stuff like passing documents back and forth. But one of the really compelling stories is this story where she has to... Um, she goes walking into a church, and in the church, the, the secret police are outside, and in the church this um, is this woman the secret police have been following, and she's sort of the similar build. And so the, my mother and this woman exchange clothes, and my mother walks out of the church as a decoy. And she walks out, the secret police follow her, and then she um, goes into a place where she stashed some of her own clothes and comes out and is safe, and the woman escapes. Um but that's the kind of thing where I just think, wow, um, my mother, who I always sort of thought of as a June cleaver with kolaches, um, my mother did this. Mm-hmm. And I think you, you've said elsewhere that you, you admire your mother's courage and, and kind of compare yourself uh, not so favorably to, to her, her Right, courage. right. I mean, she had a sense of courage, and she was really, really modest about it. I mean, she did not talk about these stories. You had to drag these stories mm-hmm. out of her. Um, but she was really courageous in a way. I mean, the I, even the act of coming to Idaho, even this idea of leaving behind her family, she wasn't able to say goodbye to anyone when she left, leaving them behind and living a, um, 
in Munich and then in New York and then what seems to me on a lark coming out to Idaho. Um, that's, that takes something. That mm-hmm. really takes some fortitude. Mm-hmm. So she really was smuggled out of Czechoslovakia mm-hmm. in the false bottom of a wine barrel? Yes. She and Francis, um, Josef had moved to Munich, had escaped earlier, and he started working for Radio for Europe. And through his connections, he then got them through a couple years later, got them through the border as well um, by creating this... Um, this passage through the uh, across the Austrian border under the false bottoms of wine barrels, and then they were accompanied by armed guards for three days through the various, you know, the American frontier, as it's called in in Czechoslovakia, um, or in Austria, and then on into Germany, where they lived for three years. Yeah, we're going to uh, pick up uh, the the story of Evelyn Funda's mother and uh, how she uh, came out to Idaho, why she came out to Idaho. And an interesting idea of how you piece together the uh, these these pieces of your family history. Evelyn Funda had to, to use artifacts and, and journals, and uh, for example, her her dad's farm log, mm-hmm. and, that, and try to infer things from uh, that, that she didn't know. These are things perhaps you can do with your family history, and a very interesting uh, story of her family and how it's representative of how we idealize the uh, farm experience. What's lost as the family farm is disappearing at a alarming rate. In Thomas Jefferson's day, 90% of the population worked on family farms. Now it's less than 1%. In fact, uh, I believe I read here, it's probably in your book, 1993 Census Bureau discontinued the occupation of farmer. Right. I was just thinking about that. Yeah. They decided that it was it was statistically insignificant, as Mm -hmm. they said. And so they stopped listing the number of farmers and instead grouped farmers with people like fishermen and lumbermen and and um, that kind of thing. Yeah. So we'll talk about what it what it has meant to Evelyn Funda to to lose the family farm and uh, what it means to you. We're opening the phone lines now and email. You can email us at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. Call us at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Do you have farming heritage in your family? What does farming life mean to you, whether or not you were raised on a farm or not? You're probably only two or three generations removed from the farm, as, mm-hmm. as most of us are. We'd love you to tell us your story. Perhaps your immigrant story as well. What, uh, when did your family come over? What was that experience? By the way, already on Facebook, we have this from Aaron Brewer. Brewer, uh, Excuse me, Aaron. Uh, I love Evelyn, she says. Congrats on the book. So that's uh, Aaron <laughs> Thanks, Brewer's Aaron. comment. Thank you. And uh, you can comment on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page as well. We'll take a break. Back with more with Evelyn Funda, uh, whose new book is Weeds, A Farm Daughter's Lament. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Festival Opera and Musical Theater. Through August 10th in Logan with Fiddler on the Roof, one of the longest-running shows on Broadway and winner of nine Tony Awards. Starring Michael Ballam, information at utahfestival.org. Did you know that less than one-third of Americans hold at least a bachelor's degree? But at least 30% of adults in 16 states, mostly on the coasts, have earned a bachelor's degree or higher? The three interior states among those 16 are Illinois, Minnesota, and Utah. Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu.
Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Evelyn Funda, who is uh, Associate Professor of American Literature at Utah State University. She is author of a new book, Weeds, A Farm Daughter's Lament. In 2001, uh, her parents uh, sold off the last parcel of their farm, which they had worked since their marriage in 1957. And in fact, the farm goes back further than that to uh, Evelyn Funda's uh, grandfather. This is in Emmett, near Boise in southern Idaho, and uh, emblematic of uh, the experience that many of our families have had. Uh, In this case, uh, Czech immigrants, but uh, many of us, of course, in America are immigrants, and we're asking what is lost. In the book Weeds, Evelyn Funda reminds us that in losing our attachment to the land, we also lose some of our humanity, something at the very heart of our identity as a nation. We'll also get talking about what uh, farming and farmers have meant. Uh, Evelyn Funda, you call it a shopping cart into which we put a lot of our ideals. That's right. That's been so even before the founding of America, but Thomas Jefferson famous, uh, famously called farmers the chosen people of God. And that, that, that these were the best citizens because they were closest to the land. Yeah, he saw them as, as inherently virtuous. And um, he conceived of farming in the way I, I often call it the farmer citizen, that that. To be a farmer meant you were a better citizen, and you were a better citizen because you were a farmer. I mean, those th- those things went hand in hand. You had a kind of commitment to the American landscape that no one else had. Mm. You also write about uh, farmers markets. Yeah. And uh, you, this acronym that I hadn't been familiar with, S-O-L-E. Yes, soul food. Uh, which stands for? Sustainable, organic, local, and environmentally safe. Or, I mean, it means ethical. Oh, ethical, yeah. that's what the E stands for. But, of course, you could take it as soul, S-O-U-L. Mm-hmm. That's right. They're, they're doing a play on that. And I think that embodied in that acronym is this sort of way that we um, see farming as not only as a literal thing of putting seed in the ground, for instance, but it's also this imaginative, psychic kind of occupation. So that when we go on the weekend to the farmer's market, we are associating with this ideal that we have. Mm -hmm. We're rubbing shoulders with farmers Mm -hmm. as seen as noble people who toil from from the land and bring us this, I guess, acceptable, ethical Mm -hmm. produce. Mm -hmm. And I think of, of farming, farmer's markets as really kind of characteristic of this idea that we're bringing the farmer into the community. You know, we think of the farmer as kind of isolated um, out on the farm kind of thing, especially in America. And farmer's markets, it's this know your food, know your farmer kind of idea. And, you know, I think about our own farmer's market here in town. I mean, there's there are farmer's market booths right next to artisan booths where people are doing artisan bread and artisan soaps and selling photographs. I mean, that's, that's a message to me that we are thinking of that as a kind of creative act. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the ideal. And of course, obviously something is lost from that ideal when we get produce from a big yeah. agricultural company. Right. But we still get the produce, we still get the get the food. So what what is what is lost then if we cuz less than 1% of the farms now are family farms. Yes, it's It's a big business. Yeah, um what's lost? Well, I mean th- that's a really complicated story. There's mm-hmm. a lot of things that that are lost, but it's this connection. I mean, I think of of a passage in Barbara Kingsolver's book and Animal Vegetable Miracle where she talks about this little boy who doesn't know that carrots grow in the ground and um, how sort of 
horrendous that is, is that we, do, we have no concept of where our food come, comes from. And versus that, versus um, there's a, a, a website that's associated with Farm Aid, and their motto is, in dirt we trust. Well, that's an interesting line. I mean, think about that. Where does that come from? That comes from, in God we trust? That's a potential heresy. We've re- replaced dirt with the word God in a terms of a prayer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which could be heresy, as you point out in the mm-hmm. book, but but maybe mm-hmm. more so it's it's uh, equating. Yeah, the, it's this idea getting back to the dirt with 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 God. Yeah, and it's and it's also the ideal of the farmer being a kind of godlike figure who brings into being that which was not before. I mean, that's a that's an incredible power. Mm-hmm. The phone lines are open. We're talking with Evelyn Fonda. She's Associate Professor of American Literature at Utah State University and author of the new book. It's the story of her family and uh, many of these uh, larger issues that we've been talking about. Weeds, A Farm Daughter's Laments, just out from University of Nebraska Press and uh, available. You are welcome to join this conversation through our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. You can join us by email at upraxcess at gmail.com. Or you can call us at 1-800-826-1495. We'd love to hear your family's immigrant story, your family's farming story, and what do you think is lost? As now uh, less than 1% of uh, farming is the family farm. And I don't know what the percentage is, Evelyn Fund, in, in Utah, in, in the West. Maybe it's be a little, slightly larger, but probably not all that different from national statistics. It's it's still, a lot of us know a farmer, but it's, right. it's still a very small percentage that are actually family farms out there with that legacy generation to generation. Those those states in the West here are really losing a lot. You know, the, I think about Idaho, where I come from, and in Idaho, um, you know, the state seal has a farmer on it. And yet, if you look at the the occupational census kinds of records, the the greatest, the largest percentage of Idaho citizens work in technological industries. Mm. Um, but yet, we still see ourselves, Idahoans, still see ourselves as we're farm people. Yeah, and I have a friend I grew up with in Vernal. I I still remember this. Even when he was in high school, he had the goal to go out get an occupation where he could earn enough money that he could go back and mm-hmm. work the farm in retirement. Mm-hmm. You hear a lot of people doing that. Right, right. The hobby farm yeah. kind of phenomenon. Yeah. Um, also, I think with this ideal, we still have this ideal, and, and so some of us want to get back to the land. There's the back to the land movement. Right, and the back to the land movement, I mean, you know, that dates back in many ways to like Henry David Thoreau going out um, to Walden Pond, but it's become really increasingly popular in the last few years where we're starting to realize, you know, we really do need to know our food, know our farmer. Mm-hmm. And I th- maybe that gets back to even in what we think of as very rural parts of America, uh, most of us in the West do live in cities, or at least the mm-hmm. suburban areas, mm-hmm. and we carry out occupations that are urban mm-hmm. in character. Yeah, if you look at... Um, census trends 1920 the census from 1920 was the first census in which as a nation we were more urban than we were rural and that seems to me a real sort of watershed moment in american history because even after that even as we become increasingly urban um we still think of ourselves as kind of a founded on a farm and by the way also in 2003 uh, three, I think it is. There's something called the urban millennium, which is that moment the, the census takers believe. I mean, obviously, it's hard to 
pinned down, that the whole world, the whole globe, at that point became more urban than rural. The entire globe. The entire globe. Yeah. And probably, this is not just American, I imagine a lot of cultures have this ideal. Right, the, the the farming back to the land yeah. ideal, or is it, or is it uniquely I think, American? I think in some ways it's uniquely American. Mm. Um, because remember, for instance, in Europe, a lot of what's going on is that farming really was what people in poverty had to do. The peasant class had to do. Um, it was not, there were gentlemen farmers, and there were estate manors, but. We do have a caller up next. Sounds like another call coming in. Um, so be patient. We'll, we'll get to you. Uh, the number is 1-800-826-1495. Encourage your call. Uh, you can email us, upraxcess at gmail.com, or you can uh, reach us by our Facebook page, UPR, uh, Utah Public Radio Facebook page. The book is Weeds, A Farm Daughter's Lament. The author is Evelyn Funda. She's with me for the hour. Uh, so we go next to our caller, uh, who is Lauren in Grace, Idaho. Have I got your name right? We'll see if we can uh, pull Lauren up. Uh, yes, looks like hello. We, hello, is it Lauren? It's actually Lara. Lara, uh, excuse me. Uh, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Oh, I um, I liked her comment about not knowing where carrots came from. I actually live, you know, on a rural area, and we kind of have a little family farm. I used to be bigger, but. It's gotten smaller, and we we um, live around people who do a lot of farming is their second job. So you you do a job, and it, farming is your way of life to to be able to live there. And and my husband and I both work in a hospital in Logan, but but we have a farm. And my fourteen and seventeen year old boys are up in the fields right now. But when my fourteen year old son was um, about six years old. We went to visit my family in Meridian, Idaho, which is close to Emmett. That's right. And my mother took him to the grocery store, and he walked past the dairy section, and and he said, Grandma, you can buy eggs at a store? He was shocked. He said, I thought they came from chickens. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) there is still a few children out there that have the reverse view of where things came from. So... Yeah, and it's, it's, it is kind of sad that uh, we, we have some children, some adults, well, maybe not adults, but uh, we, we lose that connection with, with where, where the food comes from, that connection to the Yes, land. and I, I think one of the things that makes me really sad is that um, farming as a way of life teaches children to work. And I think that a lot of the problems that we have in society are based on our, our younger generation not knowing the ethics of hard work and... And that's actually one of the main reasons we live like we do. It's a lot harder. It would be easier to be in the city and and just you know go to a job and come home. But um, this is this is how we are trying to teach our children to be good members of society and have good good work ethics and and um, be able to to succeed in life. And and so that's it's it's wonderful. You know, there's never an end of jobs to do. So. Yeah, and you've, it sounds like you've got your kids on the farm right now. So what you say? Yeah. Yes, they yeah, are. <laughs> so, well, actually fixing a sprinkler riser that they broke on the four-wheeler coming home last night. So. Right. Well, <laughs> so. thank, thanks for the call, Laura. You're welcome. Pre- appreciate okay. your, your experience. All right, thanks. And Laura, you sound like Thomas Jefferson. 
<laughs> yeah, they're they're living that ideal. That's right. That's right. Uh, we go next to Betty. Is our, our next caller in? Betty, uh, glad you called. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Um, first of all, my dad grew up on a farm, and I was privileged. I know now to have the farm experience when my grandparents still actually lived it. Uh, the outhouse and the pump and the and the be careful of the hogs and the the whole bit. But this was in Missouri, and uh, we have maintained and still have, still own that farm. Uh, We sharecrop it with a a neighbor that my grandparents knew and now into the next generation of that family. Uh, I consider this my legacy. I do not consider that I own it for myself. Um, I'm sustaining it. We make just enough to keep it going and to get a little out of it every year, but not a lot. Um, This is a family farm, though, uh, run by uh, this other family. They have land of their own, but they also run ours. And um, I'm going to pass it on. Uh, uh, My sister and I each have a son. Both of them are urban dwellers. They will never probably work that, that land. But the legacy from my grandparents is important to me to carry on. And I, I've said in a kind of a doomsday attitude that there may be a time that my family is very, very grateful to have 500 acres in northeast Missouri mm. uh, of, of good cropland. Uh, I don't know what the future will hold, but I do know that I have that land. And I hope we'll always have it. Yeah, thank you, buddy. That's, You're uh, welcome. I think a lot of, a lot of people probably share Buddy's ideals and hopes there. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I think about in in the book that I talk about is this idea that I can have roots in one place and I can grow and live in another. Um, I still have roots in Emmett, Idaho. I still own the actual house that my parents um, lived in, but just two acres of of what was originally a small 70-acre farm. But hanging on to those two acres to me is somehow, I don't know, it's it's difficult to explain. I mean, I think all of us, you can hear it, I think, in the voice of the callers. We're trying to express how deeply felt is that connection to that mm-hmm. land. Yeah, it's obvious Betty is not just passing down land. Right? She's Mm-mm. passing down much exactly. more. Exactly. Yeah. Appreciate those calls. You can call as well. I hope you will. Uh, we'd love to have your immigrant story, your uh family farming story. Uh, what is uh, f- the farming heritage in your family? What does farming life mean to you? We'd love to have your story. And uh, the number is 1-800-826-1495. What is lost when the family farm is lost? We'd love to have your thoughts on that as well. 1-800-826-1495. Uh, you can reach us by email at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com, or on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. And by email, I think this is someone you know, Evelyn, uh, Joyce Kincaid has has emailed in, might uh, Evelyn suggest farm-themed novels to read? Her weed sounds wonderful and is on my reading list. Um, Yes, and of course I'm an American lit professor and I teach a lot of agricultural literature. And so probably, I mean, you know, there's some real standards. Um, Grapes of Wrath, for instance, or Willa Cather, who I studied in graduate school, and I've spent a lot of my um, literary career on. Uh, Willa Cather has two terrific books, one called My Antonia, which, ironically enough, the main character is Antonia, and my mother's name was Antonia, um, or O Pioneers. 
all of which, both of those, I think, are really interesting in that they show a sort of um, the role of women on the farm. Mm-hmm. And Grapes of Wrath, of course, talks about the those who are dispossessed, who um, can no longer live on those farms in, in Oklahoma, and what happens to them as they're sort of wandering around aimlessly trying to make a living and feeling and feeling that loss really deeply. Hmm. In fact, you're putting together a, uh, a farm reader, right? That's right. That'll, and actually, out pretty soon. well, in fact, this is a project that I'm working with, with Joyce Kincaid on. Um, she's a, a specializes in rhetoric and undergraduate research. And then we also have another colleague, Lynn McNeil, who's a folklorist. And we're putting together a textbook that we hope will someday be used by Aggie schools, Um, those schools that were established in 1862 by the Morrill Land Grant Act. I mean, remember, we've just just last year celebrated 150 years of the Morrill Land Grant Act. And what we've sort of found is, you know, what we fear is that at Aggie schools, the humanities tend to think of themselves as sort of separate from the Aggie mission. They they feel that it that's not really their mission. That's not they don't know how to engage in that conversation. And we wanted to create a textbook where we said that the humanities do engage in this conversation and we are a vital part of that conversation. It's our responsibility to tell the human story of agriculture and what it has meant over time. Mm-hmm. And you have a class you teach periodically. Yes, I teach a course on lit and culture of the American farm. Yeah. Um, it's an American studies course, very interdisciplinary, and it's a course where we we cover a lot of material. We, we cover literature like Grapes of Wrath and My Antonia, but we also do things like um, farm aid concerts mm-hmm. and farmer's market posters and more posters of victory gardens from the, you know, the World War eras, and um, Farmer's Daughter's Jokes, Mm -hmm. which is going to be a chapter in the book. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Uh, I was going to ask you about that, since you bring that up. Uh, We've all heard Farmer's Daughter's Jokes, and they all kind of run on a similar theme. What do you think the meaning behind that is? Well, you know, I'm troubled by the meaning of Farmer's Daughter's Jokes, Mm -hmm. because I think that, um, from my feminist perspective, there's a real sort of element in them that is that is disturbing. Um, the farmer's daughter is always somebody who does not have direct connection to the land. She only has claim to this place through her father. And she is sort of this wild, sex-crazed temptress. I, I mean, I think of her as a Barbie with a pitchfork. Mm-hmm. Um, and she has no control. She has no agency. She's the kind of woman who the men come to her um, there's this threat. There's always this threat of of rape, but it's also consensual. She's the one tempting them, but it's only through sex that she has power, mm. and that's kind of disturbing to me. That there there isn't power through the land. Yeah, this gets at an idea that's that that has been a you know running theme um, of the, the the woman was not supposed to be on the farm, right? She was supposed to be. Yeah, I mean, that varies from from person to person. My experience was that. But I also have a lot of friends and colleagues who say, look, I had to really work on the farm a lot. But I think that because my parents were Czech immigrants, um, what I found in historical studies is that those of us who came through Czech immigrant families, the women, moving the women out of the farm field was often thought of as a kind of class move that in order to be able to have the woman just in the home and that her entire farm role was the garden or the chicken house, um, that that 
marked a kind of class rising. Um, in, she didn't have to work in the field. I mean, I remember when my when I was doing research on my grandfather, I found this newspaper clipping that they were talking about in Buell, Idaho, and it was a story of in Russia. The women have to be hitched to the plow in order to plow because they don't have horses. Well, that was exactly the kind of of image of European farmers that my parents were trying to escape. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and in some ways fell back into, right? The, 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 um, as an immigrant, if you're trying to rise up, you got to, the, to America and you found that you were, you were on the bottom rung. Very much so. Yeah. Uh, We're going to talk more about this. We'll take a brief break. When we come back, uh, we hope to have your comment. We have a a comment in from Brian in Hyde Park. We'll get to that after the break. Uh, We'd love to have uh, your farming experience. Uh, Where does farming fit into your family? What kind of heritage has uh, farming played in your family that's uh, passed down family to family? The kind of thing that Betty was uh, talking about, uh, caller earlier. And what does farming life mean to you? What are we losing with the loss of the family farm? We're talking with Evelyn Funda. She is Associate Professor of American uh, Literature at uh, Utah State University and author of a new book, Weeds, A Farm Daughter's Lament. More following the break. Coming up on the next Bluegrass Breakdown, it's the atomic number of oxygen, the number of legs on a spider, the number of notes in an octave, the number of beatitudes, the number of vegetables in a popular juice, the name of a community in West Virginia, and the subject of many a great bluegrass song. I'm Dave Higgs, and we'll be looking at the number eight on the next Bluegrass Breakdown. Saturday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Shakespeare Festival, presenting Shakespeare's The Temptest with seven other productions through October in 2013 in Cedar City, www.bard.org, and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, now open Monday through Saturday until 2, with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Uh, We are talking about farming, family farm. In Thomas Jefferson's day, 90% of the population worked on family farms. Now that's down to 1%. And we're wondering what's been lost. Farming uh, has been idealized over the years, especially in America. Thomas Jefferson called farmers the chosen people of God. And we're asking you, uh, what do you think is lost when... 99% of farming now is agribusiness, and less than 1% is the family farm. Many of us uh, only have to go back two or three generations to... to, to reach farmers, farming in our heritage. We're asking you what uh, that heritage is in your family and what do you think is lost with the loss of uh, the family farm. Evelyn Funda is with us. She's author of a book, Weeds, A Farm Daughter's Lament, just out from University of Nebraska Press. The number is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. You can reach us on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page or you can email us at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. Here's what Brian in Hyde Park um, says in his email. One of the complaints I hear from employers and others is that youth no longer know how to work hard. They can't stick to a task and they wilt under a little pressure. I grew up in a small town and learned to work by hauling and stacking hay and straw from area farmers. 
I hated the heat, the scratchy straw down the neck, the sweat that poured off my face, and the long, hard days. But when my son is a few years older, I plan to contact some of these same farms to see if they will hire him on for summer jobs. Maybe I'm just waxing nostalgic, but I feel I learned how to work while on a farm. Brian in Hyde Park. And I, I, I'm really interested in the last line that he says. I mean, he recognizes that he may be waxing nostalgic, but nevertheless, these are values that are deeply held. And he hangs on to them, and he wants those values for his son. Mm-hmm. And he wants to go back to that source to have his son right, learn right, those same right. ideals. I mean, you know, we learn to work hard in other places. I mean, the reality is is that farming is not the only place we learn to work hard. But there is a kind of cultural concept that this is the the greatest, the most pure, the most, um, I don't know, important place that we learn these values. Mm. We just have about uh, four minutes left, and uh, here at the end of the conversation, I want to get into uh, something I find fascinating, uh, how you piece together the story. Uh, Of course, we can only speculate. You can only speculate, right? right. Uh, Right. Why your mother came out from New York and and made her life in in Idaho and, and, uh, you know, what what your father was thinking. Um, You do have some clues, and so I guess what you have done and suggest others could do is take these artifacts, these clues, piece them together, do the best you can. I like a quote you have, uh, I think it's in the book, you said these stories are there, you just have to uh, learn how to read them and how to tell them. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the ledger that I I read about here shortly, a few minutes ago, that's one of those stories of here's this ephemera, this this piece of paper, essentially, that is ordinary and, and is probably meaningless to other people, but I found a story in it. And another example is my mother's, um, she had a bathrobe when I was growing up in the closet, and I used to crawl under the bathrobe. It was very silky, and it was this black, sort of very exotic thing with big sprays of flowers. And I loved it, but I didn't know where it came from. And since I started working on the book, what I realized is that bathrobe came from New York, her time in New York, and she brought it with her. And it is kind of, as when I put it on, I realized, you know, this is sexy lingerie. This, it has one button in the middle. It has these tiny little pockets that really are useless. Um, you know, it, it's low cut. This was her coming out with a purpose. And, you know, it's kind of weird and hard to think about your parents in that way. But it kind of gave me this sense of, wow, my mother really was that kind of person. I like that. Mm. And so often you, your parents, your family members don't talk about their feelings. They don't talk. I mean, if you can get them to talk yeah. about that, that's, that's yeah. golden. But uh, sometimes all we have is, is these artifacts. Yeah, we were not a journaling family. We did not keep many letters. I mean, I have like three letters from my parents' correspondence. So what I had to do is I had to really look at artifacts and really see if there was a way to tease out the meaning in those artifacts. And sometimes it was a matter of putting things side by side. You know, this idea of all these artifacts from knowing when my mother came to Idaho, you know, having her ticket put side by side with that ledger from 1956. Mm. Uh, Ledger is very, it features prominently, very interesting. And it's pretty dry, right? It's just what you're yeah, it's, what your father did, uh, absolutely. the crops, whatever it is, but you, you're able to tease out some clues. Yeah, the fact that that Sunday, he didn't work at all. Mm. And, you know, farmers don't do that during harvest time. You work seven days a week, at least in Idaho. 
Um, and the fact that he took the day off, that meant something. Mm-hmm. Just briefly, I wonder if you could, and this is unfair to ask you to tell this briefly, your your grandfather, Frank, very interesting <laughs> character, storyteller. Yeah. And and you, you kind of go on a quest to find out what's true and what's not true, right? Uh, right. I mean, he came to Idaho and, and he really believed in the homesteader sort of mythology, this this sort of Jeffersonian mythology. And, and he came to Idaho and he always told stories of, you know, I was a homesteader. And then he had other stories about, you know, first all-electric bakery in Idaho, et cetera. And he really kind of painted these grand pictures. But when I push came to shove and I started doing research, they all fell apart one by one. And he was an elusive person. And it was, I always think of him as kind of a trickster character because he is always, you know, there's always this sense that you can never quite trust what he has to say. And he's evasive, but there's a kind of sense of humor about it. I mean, I, I was frustrated and angry with him at one point, but then I kind of, I look back and I think, you know, this is kind of funny. Mm. Mm. Um, and uh, it's interesting that you had clippings um, from Czech newspapers. There was there were national Czech newspapers. Well, actually, the the problem is, is I don't have clippings from those newspapers. Mm. I mean, one of the stories is is that he wrote about uh, the Czech. Czech immigrant experience in Idaho in these national Czech newspapers. Well, I've never been able to lay my hands mm-hmm. on those clippings, on these stories that he was supposedly sto- told in Hlasatel, which was a, a hugely, um, huge, hugely subscribed national Czech newspaper. Mm. Finally, just a, just a couple of minutes. I wonder if, if you could talk a little bit more about why you called the book Weeds <laughs> and what what the yeah. metaphor is there. Yeah. I mean, originally the book was called Hard Pan because I was interested in this idea of, of a family that didn't talk about things. And But what I realized as I was writing it is I was talking a lot about weeds. I mean, the opening chapter is called Daughter, and that's not D-A-U-G-H-T-E-R. That's D-O-D-D-E-R, which is a kind of parasitic weed. Um, and I was a I was a grown woman. It was after my parents' death that I finally realized, oh, that word is D-O-D-D-E-R. It's not daughter. The, you know. And so when my father would cuss the, that damn daughter in the, in the fields, you know, there was a hard, it was this kind of message that came home to me. Oh, I'm a parasite. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, the, all of the chapters are named after various weeds. Like my mother's chapter is wild oats because wild oats has this unique way of, of, making an an attachment wherever it goes. And I saw that as symbolic. Uh, and sage. Yeah. My father, my grandfather, yeah. the sage, the sage yeah. um, who came out and transformed sagebrush land into, into land, or so he said, yeah. um, when in actual fact he didn't even homestead at all. Right. He bought some land and he didn't stay on it very long yeah. and then he moved. So. And of course, sage, sagebrush. Right. Ubiquitous. Exactly. <laughs> throughout, throughout the West. We're all familiar with exactly. that. Exactly. We sort of that think site, of it yeah. as a symbol of of the West beyond the 100th meridian. Yeah. Well, there's much more in the book. Uh, you can get this. Uh, it's out now. Uh, it's from University of Nebraska Press. Weeds, A Farm Daughter's Lament. Evelyn Funda is Associate Professor of American Literature at Utah State University and has been my guest for the hour. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. It was my pleasure. And uh, you can continue this conversation with us. Just go to our website, upr.org, and you can comment there to continue the conversation. We hope you join us tomorrow for Access Utah. For producer Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today. The other day, Jenny was having trouble with her computer. 
She asked me to fix it. Radio commentator Thad Box. Since our son, who works for a big government-sponsored physics lab, was coming that night, I suggested we wait and let an expert have a go at it. The next morning, I described the problem and asked Dennis to take a look at her computer. Have you tried the TOTO protocol, he asked. Nope, never heard of it, I said. Then I'll teach you, he said. It'll probably solve 90% of your electronic device problems. It was used in the early days of NASA. It is now used by the military, the space program, all the major airlines, and in electronic repair shops. We use it every day at Fermilab. It's the first thing technical people ask you when you call them. The first thing I ask them is, will they speak English, I said. I'm not sure I'm up to learning a Fermilab protocol. For an old farm boy who can overhaul a pickup in the middle of the desert, this will be easy, he said. The first TO is to turn off the device. The second TO is to turn it back on. This generally fixes the problem. If it doesn't, go to the second TO. Initiate the off power, relax, go have a cup of coffee. Go back and turn it on again. Then if that doesn't work, buy a new computer. I went to Jenny's office, closed down her computer, and turned it off. I turned it back on. It groaned a little during the boot-up, but it works perfectly. Since the TOTO protocol is in practice in every country in the world, I doubt Dennis will get in trouble for leaking government secrets. And now I can tell all my old friends how to fix their computers, get their car to work, fix their mobile phones. That is, if I can remember how that TOTO protocol works, this is Thad Box. KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KUSU FM HD1 Logan.